Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Today on the show, Wyoming's congressional delegation lacks enthusiasm for the Paris climate talks. It is time for the president to move away from his focus on climate, which to me appears like a trivial pursuit. The University of Wyoming football team has been plagued by an inordinate number of concussions this season. Is this, you know, a one-time event that just spiked, or is there some things that we need to alter? As mule deer numbers drop, scientists are wondering if the problem doesn't have a lot to do with disturbed migration routes. One of the big questions is we actually have no idea where these animals go during the winter. We will also have a discussion on school funding. Join us for those stories and much, much more on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming's congressional delegation is joining arms with most Republicans in Congress as the GOP tries to derail the global climate change talks in Paris at the end of the month. Matt Laszlo reports on the battle raging in Washington that will be felt across Wyoming. Remember when Democrats controlled Congress a few years back? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid had stout majorities. Yet even then, Democrats couldn't get legislation passed to combat climate change. So why is the Obama administration preparing to go to Paris to promise the world drastic emission reductions from the U.S.? Oh, he's bypassing Congress. That's Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis. She says President Obama isn't being honest with global leaders as he's promising lavish reductions in CO2. Clearly, the um, environmental issues are uh, front and center in his, uh, his legacy. And... He wants to spend these last months in office uh, making that legacy more polished. This week, the U.S. Senate passed legislation by a slim majority to block the president's Clean Power Plan, or CPP. That's the new carbon reduction rules coming from the Environmental Protection Agency. Wyoming Senator Mike Enzi says it's not right for the president to go to Paris and tell the world the U.S. is taking the lead on climate change is nothing short of irresponsible and disingenuous. With the Senate rejecting the carbon proposal just this week, Enzi says the president doesn't have much of a leg to stand on. The emissions goals described in CPP, which have been rejected by industry and rejected by almost half the states, are at the heart of this administration's plan to contribute to the overall global emissions reduction. To make commitments to our allies based on that plan doesn't have the support of the American public, Democrats beg to differ. Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is one of the loudest crusaders in Washington against climate change. He says the president will explain to other leaders that he'll veto the Republican bill. Whitehouse says congressional Democrats will lead the push towards renewables. We're going to uphold the veto and strong majorities of the American public support action on climate change. Massachusetts Democratic Senator Ed Markey adds that the Paris talks are a great chance to move the world off fossil fuels basically boils down to whether or not in the 21st century the United States is going to be the leader in a clean energy revolution, wind and solar and other 
uh, renewable energy technologies, uh, or we are going to still be tied to 19th century technologies like coal. President Obama is also promising to help other nations transition off coal and other fossil fuels with billions of dollars in assistance from the U.S. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso is predicting Congress will never allocate that promised money. Congress will weigh in on whatever comes out of the Paris climate talks and the money that the president has requested as part of his budget. Congress will have a say. Barrasso adds that after the tragic terrorist attacks in France last week, the focus shouldn't be on energy issues. It is time for the president to move away from his focus on climate, which to me appears like a trivial pursuit. The president ought to be focused not on the upcoming Paris climate talks two weeks from now, but on the attacks that, are hap that happened in Paris last week. Yet the president has promised $3 billion for his global uh, climate, his green climate fund. Congresswoman Lummis says the Paris climate negotiations don't matter because the president won't even be in the Oval Office to implement any agreement. I'm not terribly concerned about uh, the long-term effects of, of this. Uh, it will be the next president uh, working with the next Congress uh, that makes decisions on these issues that at least have a uh, medium-term effect. One way or another, whatever happens in Paris is going to be felt in Wyoming. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. Staying with the topic of carbon emissions, North Dakota doesn't produce anywhere near as much coal as Wyoming. But the state's coal industry still feels the heat from the clean power plant, which targets carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. Under the final version of the plan, North Dakota will have to cut its emissions more than any other state except Montana. Both Wyoming and North Dakota are suing to stop the plan. Inside Energy's Emily Guerin reports. The gym at the Beulah Civic Center in central North Dakota was crowded on a cold Thursday night in November. Men and women, mostly middle-aged, some young families, shuffled slowly through a long line to get dinner. All right. Are you guys hungry? They greeted friends. Hi, Shirley. Would you like a burger or a brat? And grabbed styrofoam cups of coffee. Many had matching t-shirts and wristbands that said, Coal keeps North Dakota strong. It felt like a pep rally for the local high school football team, the Beulah Miners, who would go on to win the state championship the very next day. What it did not feel like was what it actually was, an informational meeting about the clean power plan. It's dominating the coffee shop talk right now, as it should be. Christy Obenauer is the CEO of a local bank, where about 75% of her customers have some tie to the coal industry. North Dakota isn't a huge coal-producing state. It ranks ninth nationally, but the industry has a big impact locally. Close to half the students at Beulah High School have at least one parent working at a mine or a coal-fired power plant. The concern would be if the plants and mines can't continue to operate as they do now, that they shut down or downsize and that people lose their jobs. If you don't have a farm or a ranch to go back to, I can't imagine what anybody's going to do here. Luke Voigt is the business manager for the Boilermakers Union, the guys who maintain the coal-fired power plants. I asked him, but what about the Bakken oil field nearby? Couldn't laid-off coal miners just go work on a drilling rig? Voigt says, no thanks. The Bakken's a job, but this is careers. Oil booms and busts, Voigt says. Just look at what's happening now. There's only 60 drilling rigs in the state down from over 180 a year ago. Coal is stable, and so is the lifestyle. The oil field, you go out and you make a lot of good money for a while, and they work the snot out of you. 
but then when they're done with you, they're done with you. We're here, you know, we just constantly, there's work coming, we got a good retirement, there's good benefits. That's a career. Careers and coal communities, that's what's at stake. Under the Clean Power Plan, North Dakota has to cut emissions from power plants by 45%. Dave Glott spoke at the informational meeting. He's with the Department of Health and is in charge of figuring out how to meet the target. At the end of the day, I'm hopeful that power plants stay open and coal mines stay open, but I can't tell you that with 100% certainty because I don't know what that plan's going to look like. One thing he's considering? turning in a state plan that doesn't actually meet the 45% reduction. It's a risky strategy because if the EPA doesn't like it, they could impose their own plan. And that's one thing North Dakotans really hate, being told what to do by the feds. They come out here and they have these public hearings and they pretend they, they're listening and they pretend they're paying attention to what it is that we're saying and we try to reason with them and they ignore us. Attorney General Wayne Stenjum is suing the EPA over what he sees as an unfair and illegal final rule. In the draft version, North Dakota only had to cut its emissions by 11 percent. In the final rule, the state's target more than quadrupled. Even though he dislikes the plan, he doesn't question the science behind the rule. It is the reality in the world that we are going to have to live with, and we're going to have to contend with it, and we can do that. And that reality means, while they are suing over the plan, they're also working on a way to comply. As Dave Glott of the Health Department put it, we can't put our heads in the sand. It's going to be a, quote, carbon-constrained future. For Inside Energy, I'm Emily Guerin. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. When we come back, a story about the new Performing Arts Center at the University of Wyoming. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. When Teresa Bogart interviewed for a position at the University of Wyoming's music department 24 years ago, she was told the department would be getting a new building soon. Now, nearly a quarter of a century later, the newly renovated Performing Arts Center is finally here. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Kaleem Burke-Thomas found, before the renovations, conditions were bleak. There was nowhere to practice, basically. I had students, in fact, that would use the freight elevator. They would roll an instrument on the elevator and practice as it went up and down. <laughs> Steve Barnhart teaches percussion at UW. Now, the Buchanan Center for the Performing Arts has brand new practice spaces for individual musicians and ensembles. But for years, the art, theater, and music departments share the same building. Even after the art department moved into its new building in 2012, space was still tight, especially for the music department. We also had faculty teaching in practice rooms and four adjuncts sharing one studio. Teresa Bogard chairs the music department. So they would have to really manipulate their teaching schedule so that they could all go in. And since the, most of the adjuncts drive from Denver, Boulder, um, northern Colorado area, it was a real scheduling problem. Bogard is responsible for many of the improvements made to the Performing Arts Center. In addition to extra practice rooms, her department now has a dedicated choral rehearsal room and recital hall. Before we had this venue, we would have solo recitals in the concert hall, and there would be maybe 100 people there, but there are 700 seats in the concert hall. 
it would be kind of like playing a tennis match in a football stadium. So this solved a lot of um, genre problems for us. Natural light pours into the new and renovated spaces through large windows and skylights. It's a stark contrast to the almost dungeon-like architecture of the original building, which was constructed in the 1970s. But perhaps the most important renovations in the building are the least obvious. So we have walls that are about eight inches thick, and then we have panels that are built out two inches from the wall. These thick walls and acoustic panels help swallow the loud sounds produced in the basement of the building, where the percussionists practice. This is a big deal. Before the renovations, Bogart says the noise isolation in the building was so poor, musicians experienced hearing loss. Yeah, it's been an issue from the very beginning. Some of the rooms were so loud that they were above 90 decibels. And within 15 minutes, you can have permanent hearing loss. And we had faculty and students in there all the time rehearsing. Percussion professor Steve Barnhart recalls an early attempt to fix the problem. My old office, in fact, my predecessor, someone had helped him put carpet on the walls to try to help dampen the sound. And even then, it didn't work. Barnhart says poor sound insulation wasn't only a problem for the musicians either. Many times in my old office, uh, I would get complaints from the theater department because I was too loud. Even my own colleagues in music would come next door and say, uh, we can hear the triangle coming through the wall. Can you tone it down? And I was all by myself hitting a triangle. <laughs> and it would spill into the hallways, and somebody might be teaching a lecture course next door, and they would be hearing jazz music. And so the difference is truly impressive. Marcia Knight teaches dance and was on the committee for the renovations. She says on top of the sound issues, the theater and dance department didn't have enough space. Faculty were in uh, funny little office spaces. Students were rehearsing in hallways. Absolutely, this happened all the time. Uh, rehearsing in lobbies, trying to grab hold of any kind of found space that they could to do what they were supposed to do for their classes. So why did it take so long for these renovations to be made? There just wasn't enough funding, says Teresa Bogard. In addition to the $42 million allotted by the UW Board of Trustees, both the music and theater and dance departments paid out of pocket for parts of the renovation. And even that wasn't enough to address all of the problem areas in the old building. One need only travel in the basement between the old and new wings to see where funds ran out. Halfway through the hallway that connects both sides, there's a line. Fresh paint on one side, old paint on the other. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Colleen Burke-Thomas. As the snow piles up and people across the West begin to break out their skis and snowboards, Wyoming's biggest ski resort is getting ready to celebrate its 50th winter season. The Jackson Hole Mountain Resort now has 116 ski trails, 13 lifts, an aerial tram, and 2,500 acres of terrain. But back in 1965, it saw just a handful of skiers going up on two chairlifts. The resort's business development director, Bill Lukowitz, joined Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard to talk about the resort's past, present, and future. That season, the Tiwanat and Opre Vu chairlifts opened, and that summer, the summer of 1966, the tram opened for the first time to the public. So this will be our 50th winter of operation, and 
We're looking forward to it. Tourism and recreation have really grown in the region over the last 50 years. What kind of a role has Jackson Hole Mountain Resort played in that? It's played a big role of making uh, the Jackson Hole area a four-season resort. Um, You know, tourism in Jackson Hole has been popular all the way back to the turn of the century when the first dude ranches opened up in Jackson Hole and people traveled through Jackson to Yellowstone National Park. So tourism wasn't new to Jackson Hole, but winter tourism did not even exist. You know, Yellowstone closes in the uh, the winter time to motorized traffic other than snowmobiles, and people just didn't come to the region for winter tourism. With the opening of the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, that started changing things. Um, you know, it was known right from the start as a nationally and internationally known resort, and it started attracting visitors from all over the country. And now, 15% of our business is also international. So it, it changed the landscape to Jackson Hole. People were able to get jobs. We're the, the main driver of the winter economy. That's easy to say. We, you know, we, we have the largest employee base in winter. We employ 1,800 employees on a seasonal basis, and then year-round, somewhere over 200 year-round employees. So we're a big part of the Jackson Hole economy, and really the growth of Jackson Hole, population-wise and people who have come here uh, to live, and also second homeowners, has been driven a lot by the resort being here in the wintertime. Now, one of the complications, though, of a, a resort town or, and a growing tourism industry can be a rising cost of living and uh, former residents being priced out of their homes. And we've certainly seen these things in Jackson. How is the resort addressing this? You know, it is a problem at, at most resorts throughout the West and throughout the country. It's a little more dramatic in Jackson Hole with 97% of Teton County being public land, either National Park, National Forest, or National Elk Refuge. So housing has been a big issue. The Jackson Hole Mountain Resort has taken a very active role. Uh, We just completed a project in the town of Jackson called Powderhorn. Uh, Powderhorn is one of the biggest employee housing projects run by a private uh, company or corporation. Uh, We will continue with our employee housing initiative and only do more to help the situation. Will it completely solve it? No. But we're doing our part and others in the community are working very diligently to do the same. As the resort marks its 50th winter season, do you guys have anything special planned for this year? The next event we're doing is Flashback Friday and that will be the day after Thanksgiving. We're offering skiing for $6, lessons, and rentals for $6. And all the funds from that day will be donated to four local charities. December 19th, that day we're calling as as our official birthday. And that day is full of celebration. The first thing we're going to be doing that morning is opening the new Teton lift. Uh, the new Teton lift accesses area that was previously hiked to only and is really the last area that we can develop on the mountain. That afternoon, we're going to again show our, the, our 50th movie and follow that by a 
fireworks celebration like we've never seen. We're hoping for lots of people to come out and celebrate our birthday. Our next event, uh, the first weekend of February, we're having our reunion weekend, and we're inviting all past employees of the ski area and other local businesses who've worked in Jackson over the years, may still work here, to come and enjoy a weekend in Jackson Hole and help celebrate our 50th anniversary. As the resort looks towards the next 50 years, how do you imagine that will look like? Obviously, uh, the growth can't be as dramatic on the mountain as what we've seen already. We've covered much of the terrain, and we're really moving forward with more summer activities. Um, You know, we're trying to grow at our summer. You'll see also added growth on the mountain with amenities, new restaurants on the mountain. We're also, some of our lifts we need to replace as they get 50 years. We're going to replace a lift this coming summer with a new gondola, and that will take the place of an older chairlift that we'll be removing and give great access to the new Teton lift and the Casper chairlift area. Bill Lukowitz is the Business Development Director at the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, which is celebrating and marking its 50th winter season this year. The opening day is Thanksgiving. Bill, thank you so much for speaking with us today. You bet. It was my pleasure. Thank you. When we come back, we'll hear about the decline in mule deer in Wyoming and look at the energy that goes into our food. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. 25 years ago, there were more than a half a million mule deer in Wyoming. Now that number's dropped to 360,000, and no one can quite figure out why. Many wildlife biologists say human development is literally getting in their way. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports. In the hills south of Rock Springs, it's blizzarding. But Wyoming game and fish biologist Patrick Burke says it's actually great weather for tracking mule deer. If the visibility improves, it's really good conditions, you know, with no winter like this and fresh snow, that's really good for helping locate animals. Burke and other scientists have braved this weather today in hopes of capturing the deer with helicopters to put satellite radio collars on them. They've already collared 18. They want to do 50. University of Wyoming professor Kevin Monteith is one of the group. We'll be capturing these animals twice a year for three years. We'll be capturing their young each spring for three years. Why does everyone care so much about these Rock Springs mule deer? Because no matter what they've tried, the number of deer here keep falling. Really, over the past couple of decades, we've we've pumped over $4 million into habitat treatments and other sorts of efforts to help bolster that mule deer population, but with seemingly no benefit. And for years, it's been a herd highly prized by hunters. So Monty says it's time to figure out what's wrong here. One of the big questions is we actually have no idea where these animals go during the winter. But there's been some hints it's a long way off. Last winter, a collared doe was tracked clear down to Vernal, Utah, 50 miles away. But they might travel even farther if it wasn't for a very large block in their path. Interstate 80. Matt Kaufman knows a thing or two about migrations. He recently helped discover that Wyoming is home to the longest mule deer migration in the world. 
150 miles from the Red Desert to Hoback Junction, north of Pinedale. He says what mule deer are doing is following spring. We refer to that behavior as surfing the green wave. These animals follow spring up the mountain on their migrations, always feeding in habitat patches that are just starting to green up. But they can't always surf that wave all the way to its crest. The problem is often human-made roadblocks, highways, fences, subdivisions. When a migrating animal runs into development or human activity, what we're finding is that they, they speed up, they stop over less, so stop over less to feed, and in some cases, they detour around developed portions of their route. And Kaufman says herds that can't migrate in search of the most nutritious grasses just end up smaller in number, plain and simple. This is all big news for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. They already have some protections for migration routes in the state, no more than four oil and gas well pads allowed in the migration corridor. But this month, they proposed making those rules stricter, especially in areas where animals stay and graze for days and weeks, called stopovers, or in bottlenecks where the route gets very narrow. Commission Vice President Carrie Little. But if those are so critical, then you know, I'm throwing out there maybe these areas should be off-limited for hunting, too. Banning hunting is a suggestion rarely voiced, and such talk worries Representative Albert Summers. A migration route runs through his Pinedale Ranch. He says the best way to get ranchers to help mule deer travel through their land is to collaborate, not regulate. You know, we're very paternal. That's what we do. We raise animals. And so I think that carries on to the wildlife. And so, you know, in this, there's a natural ally if you know how to explore it and don't alienate it. He says the state needs to make it easy for ranchers, pay them to install wildlife-friendly fences, or pay them not to develop their land. Oil and gas spokesman Nick Owens with Anadarko agrees. He says his company supports existing wildlife protections, but if they go any further, it could hurt their bottom line. Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Interior Jim Lyons says the good thing is that Wyoming is doing what no other state has done before, being proactive on migration protections. But the real value is in doing that work ahead of time and trying to avoid unintended consequences of development and economic growth. Out in the blizzard, the fog finally lifts. The helicopter appears and lowers down a mule deer doe, hanging in a large net. The scientists meet her and quickly blindfold her to keep her calm. Then they start their tests. Blood samples, body fat, heart rate. They even take a tooth to get her age. Wildlife biologist Kevin Monteith says it's the dawn of a new era in wildlife management. What we're doing is we're focusing on individual animals and trying to tell their story. With human development encroaching in the West, how that story ends remains to be seen. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards.
From the farm to our tables, there's an enormous amount of energy that goes into growing, transporting, processing, and eventually preparing our food, up to a fifth of our nation's total energy use. Our Inside Energy Project is teaming up with Harvest Public Media on a series for this holiday season. We're calling it Feasting on Fuel. In this first story, Wyoming Public Radio's Energy and Natural Resources reporter Stephanie Joyce reports the energy inputs into our food are often hidden. There are few places where the connection between energy and food is more obvious than at the bright agrotech warehouse in Laramie. Most of the building is filled floor to ceiling with giant shelves, cardboard boxes, and tubing, equipment Bright Agritech sells to farmers. But in one corner of the warehouse, there's a small farm, rows and rows of greens and herbs growing in white vertical towers under dozens of bright LEDs. The hum of electricity is palpable. We're always thinking about energy because it costs us money. That's Bright Agritech CEO Nate Story. Conventional farmers also pay for energy for fuel to run their tractors, electricity for irrigation, and fertilizers made from natural gas. But the energy inputs are more quantifiable here, in this brightly lit warehouse. Electricity comes in, food goes out. Food is energy. It's just converted into a different form. I mean, when we eat a salad, we're consuming diesel, and we're consuming electricity, and we're consuming, you know, nuclear energy. It's an energy industry. In the case of Bright Agritech, because most of Wyoming's electricity comes from coal-fired power plants, the kale and microgreens and edible flowers are largely a coal derivative. Can I have one of these uh, nasturtiums? Yeah, um, they might have gotten, oh, there's a couple there that aren't, they're opening. They're opening. still good. Electricity nasturtium. Burning coal to grow flowers like nasturtiums isn't as clean and green as Story would like it to be. But if food can be grown indoors in places like Wyoming and Colorado, the energy used for lighting is at least partly offset by the shorter distances the food has to travel. Story points out fossil fuels are hidden throughout the food supply chain, from the trucks that carry produce thousands of miles across the country to the plastic packaging and refrigerated coolers in the grocery store. We've got this incredible, incredibly huge industrial complex surrounding the production of the things that we eat. Huge and growing. One of the few studies to look at all the energy inputs into our food system shows between 1997 and 2002, food-related energy consumption grew six times faster than overall energy consumption. Pat Canning is an economist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture who co-wrote the study. He says most of that growth didn't happen on farms, indoors or out, but rather in the steps in between the farm and your dinner plate, in places like food processing, Take those bags of salad greens that have overtaken the produce aisle. Instead of, for example, buying a, a head of lettuce, taking it home, cleaning it, cutting it, you, you're paying the processors to, to cut it, to clean it, to bag it, and then all you have to do is open it, put it in a bowl, and eat it. In effect, taking human labor and replacing it with fossil fuels. And the biggest food energy consumer of all... That's right, our kitchens. Really, each home kitchen is a, is, a, is a small restaurant with a very specific clientele. On this particular evening, I'm making pasta. The tomatoes and basil and oregano are homegrown. But the sausage and noodles started as chickens and grain on farms far away, trucked for processing, then to the store refrigerator, then my refrigerator. In addition to my refrigerator, I have a stove, an oven, a microwave, a blender, an extra freezer, an indoor grill. All of these appliances, they add up. 
Estimates vary, but somewhere around a third of all the energy that goes into producing food is consumed right here in our home kitchens, hiding in plain sight. For Inside Energy, I'm Stephanie Joyce. This week, the legislature's Select Committee on School Finance Recalibration recommended that the state stick with the same school funding model it's been using for the past decade. That means school districts would get basically the same amount of money they have been getting. The move came after months of discussion and consideration of another funding model based on what consultants say it should cost to educate Wyoming students. That model would have reduced funding by about $50 million a year. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank spoke with Senate President Phil Nicholas about why they landed where they did. We hired the experts to come in and address what they described as the evidence-based model, which was how they would deliver the basket of goods of educational services if it was theirs to choose. What we know is that we deliver the funds to districts in block grants and that the districts don't provide education exactly the way the legislature has told them to do. That's a local determination. And our findings were that the existing statutory model is just as likely to satisfy the needs of the districts that the evidence-based model provided by the consultants is. And if there are disparities or unfairnesses in the existing model, those are unfairnesses and disparities that the districts have become accustomed to. They built their budgets on those disparities, and they were arrived at through lots of negotiating and prior education bills, and there was no purpose to create new inequities or differences or reallocations. Sure. To play devil's advocate, perhaps, the work done by Pikus and Odin this time around in terms of the evidence-based model for 2015 and just the work of this committee over the past period of time, uh, was any or some of it a, a waste of time considering where you guys ended up? Well, the, when you say it's a waste of time, the Constitution requires that we continue to look at education. And I think from the district's point of view, they are concerned in this budget environment that there would be severe reductions to their budgets. And this is a commitment at least now to, to direct the Appropriations Committee to move forward with this constant level of funding. And so the districts, I think, are somewhat relieved that we didn't come and say, you have to share in cuts with everyone else, which is consistent with what we are reading in the Constitution. But the overall battle to balance this budget is just beginning. The governor will make his recommendations on December 1st. The JAC will then begin hearing the bills. We know now, looking forward, that there's an approximate $1 billion shortfall in the education side of the budget simply for education operations. Um, If we use all of our savings for education, it doesn't leave a lot for economic development and some other key factors. So it's time to have the discussion. We've had this about every 10 to 15 years. But while we could see sort of the pathway forward on operations, we still do not have a clear pathway forward for school capital construction. Our largest revenue source for school capital construction are Coley's bonuses. We don't anticipate leases being sold in the next couple of years. So we have a challenge in front of us to figure out how to deal with the whole entire education model. And that will become the challenge. 
Questions about capital construction aside, just looking specifically at the school funding model, you mentioned a tough budget session ahead where some cuts are going to have to be made. You guys here today have essentially decided that the school funding model won't be one of them. Do you think that the conclusions reached here today will be shared by uh, your colleagues in other parts of the legislature? I guess what would be your predictions for how that looks moving forward? Well, what I would say to constituents in the Education Committee as well as everyone is that the committee, by uh, by making the findings today, determined that the, the method of delivery and the funding that goes through the models should stay as provided statute. That would not prevent any legislator or even the, gen- the Joint Appropriation Committee from creating an amendment that reduces funding to all sources by 1%, 3%, 5%. So you could do that through the budget and reduce the total funding to education. I don't think people want to do that, but I think that uh, people should be aware that the budget process has the capacity to both increase revenues and decrease revenues to all constituencies. The decision the committee made today appears to have support. You asked school district officials and others in the audience to stand if they supported the current legislative model, and most people stood up. You asked them to stand if they supported some version of the new proposed model, and no one stood. What was the significance of that? People said, well, why didn't you have a standing uh, vote uh, a week ago or a month ago? In reality, that standing vote that you saw that was a 100% support for the current statutory or legislative model is in an environment where the evidence model provided no increase in revenues. And while there were differences in allocations, people became more comfortable with the disparities that they are, have grown accustomed to. But if the, uh, the reason why they, we couldn't have had that straw poll a month ago is because they didn't know what the evidence-based model was going to result. Had the evidence-based model recommended another $100 million of resources, I suspect that vote would have been different. That was Senate President Phil Nicholas talking to Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank about lawmakers' recommendation for no changes to Wyoming's school funding. In a moment, we'll have a chat with U.S. Senator Al Simpson and talk about the large number of concussions suffered by UW football players this fall. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Retired U.S. Senator Al Simpson has too many friends in high places. Simpson refuses to choose between close friends like George Herbert Walker Bush, Dick Cheney, and others. Penny Preston talked with him this week at his home in Cody. Well, get out of town and land somewhere. (laughs) Senator Al Simpson was getting ready for a trip to Dallas. And considering the harsh weather that might interrupt his flights, he interrupted his packing to talk about friendships, among other things. His friendship with George H.W. Bush is a long one. In 1988, Simpson was the second most powerful Republican in the Senate, the whip, or assistant Republican leader in the Senate, when Bush Sr. asked him to join him in his presidential candidacy as vice president. Yeah, he did. 
Simpson declined. I called him. I said, George, take me off the list. I said, Ann and I have been thinking about it. We don't want to do any of that. You're wonderful to think of me. And so he, he's not saying anything. I said, George, you're supposed to be saying, Al, you can't do that. And you're not saying anything. And we joked and laughed. He said, look, I hear you, but don't say anything because the only juice at the convention will be who will be my vice president. Dan Quayle got the job. Simpson remained in the Senate, and Bush became the 41st president of the United States. Shortly after he took office, Saddam Hussein's Iraq attacked Kuwait. Bush responded with a coalition of dozens of nations in Operation Desert Shield in 1990 and Operation Desert Storm in January 1991. The war was over by the end of February. Hussein's troops literally ran from the coalition forces. Some expected Bush to take out the dictator as well. He did not. Simpson remembers. And toward the end, uh, as, as we crushed uh, the second largest army in the world, and they were jumping out of their armored personnel carriers and their tanks and all their equipment, just running, just running away from the, from the Allied forces and hollering, Viva Bush! We love Bush! Bush! Well, and then what were they getting in return was uh, just a, a shatter of arms and legs because the Allies were just shooting the trucks and Bush said, wait a minute, this isn't war, this is a shooting gallery. And all we're doing is dive bombing them and, and shooting them with, with tanks from the side. He said, cut it off, we're not going to go to Baghdad. And other people said, what a mistake. Well. You can draw your own conclusions on that one. Bush's Secretary of Defense then was another Wyomingite, Dick Cheney. Cheney went on to serve as vice president to the president's son, George W. Bush, from 2001 to 2009. After the attacks on 9-11, the 43rd president of the United States led another coalition into an invasion of Iraq in 2003 to remove weapons of mass destruction. In his recent biography, the senior Bush criticized Cheney and Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. Cheney is a close friend of Simpson's. So when we asked about Bush's comments about Cheney, Simpson refused to choose sides. George Bush has made his comments about Dick Cheney. Uh, he was asked by the author, did you want to leave this in the book? And apparently he said yes. Same with Rumsfeld. I don't know Rumsfeld well, but I sure as hell know Dick Cheney, and uh, I care very much for him and uh, his family. So I'm going to leave uh, whatever George's uh, views uh, were. He must have reasons for that, and maybe the book discloses that. I haven't read the book. But when it came to Dick Cheney's daughter, Liz Cheney, Simpson had to choose sides. She announced her candidacy for Senator Mike Enzi's seat in 2013. Once again, Simpson had a friend in a high place. He would not go against Mike Enzi. The little rugged patch there when Liz ran against uh, Mike Enzi because I had urged Mike Enzi to get into politics. I've known him many, many years, and I think he's a wonderful man, and so is Liz, and that's, uh, I said, you know, when you get ready, except for this one, well, let us know. Cheney withdrew from the Senate race in early 2014, citing family health problems. Now that U.S. Representative Cynthia Lummis has announced she'll retire, Simpson thinks Cheney will run for Lummis's congressional seat, and he plans to back her if she does. She's an amazing gal. She's very bright, and she's, she's ready, and I think she she would be uh, 
aces high, and, and uh, Anne and I feel that same way. And so it goes when you have so many friends in high places. From Cody, I'm Penny Preston for Wyoming Public Radio. bad year for concussions for the University of Wyoming football team. While the team does not release exact numbers due to federal health care regulations, media accounts put the number above 20. And everyone involved with Cowboy football admits that's a lot. With all of the attention paid to concussions these days, UW officials say they're looking closely at the situation. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports, sometimes there's little you can do. It's a bright, sunny Saturday afternoon home game against Colorado State, and the Wyoming Cowboys are taking a pounding. Several players have to leave the field due to injury, and three or four are evaluated for concussions. Head football coach Craig Bull says it seems like that's happened a lot this year. It's an unusually high number of concussions this year. You know, at the end of the year, I'm sure we're going to take a look to see, okay, uh, what, what factors come into play? Is this, you know, a one-time event that just spiked, or is there some things that we need to, to alter? Ball has coached for a long time, and he's seen years where they've had an inordinate number of knee or other injuries, and he knows that sometimes these things just happen, but he's not taking it for granted. You know, uh, you know I think if you take a long-term look and say, okay, what's going on? There's going to be spikes from year to year, but I think we would be uh, doing a disservice to our program if we didn't dig in and look and said, okay, why do we have a higher number this year uh, than what we've had in the past? Bull certainly remembers the days when coaches would tell players they got their bell rung and should just shake it off and return to the game. But thanks to new studies, he says coaches are more aware of long-term effects. He says Wyoming does what it can to reduce the likelihood of a head injury. We've changed our practice policies. Set on the rules committee a couple years ago, we've altered the the kickoff, which we feel like is a high impact play, uh, to where you know there's less kickoff collisions. We've also changed the helmet to helmet uh, rule. Has altered how people tackle. So I think there's a lot that college coaches and high school coaches and professional coaches are doing to make our sports safer. Ryan Pinson agrees. He is the director of sports medicine at the University of Wyoming and is the lead football trainer. The recent findings with um, some of the brain injury, long-term deficits, the cognitive stuff, the dementia, the CTE, obviously there's uh, a big awareness. Pinson says one of the reasons teams record more concussions than in the past is because people like him are actually looking for them. As he stands on the sidelines during this game, he's watching players to see if something seems off, and he's not the only one watching. We've implemented a medical observer policy where we're 
having someone who's not on the field with another set of eyes that's trained in sports medicine to recognize concussions as well as injuries call down and give us a immediate notice that, hey, number so-and-so needs to come off. If they sense a problem, they will take the player out of the game and evaluate them on the sideline. If they think the player's okay, they'll let them go back in. If we think there may be something more, we'll take them back to the locker room where we can get into a quiet environment, really look at some of their cognitive uh, functions, interview them. We have baselines and stuff like that that we'll go off of. Pinson says if there is any chance that the player has a concussion or any serious injury for that matter, they'll hold the player out of the game or practice. Then they will keep monitoring them and determine when they can return to the active roster. Sometimes that goes quickly, and sometimes a player can't return for several weeks. The university isn't the only one bulking up prevention strategies for concussions. High schools in the state have also taken this issue more seriously. State Activities Association Commissioner Ron Laird says they worked for years to set up statewide protocols. Those efforts got a boost when the legislature put those concussion protocols into law. Coaches now are better trained in what to look for. He says many school districts have taken an extra step. We also have several schools that have uh, started the impact testing, uh, which is a a pre-test before anyone has a concussion. And then if they do have a concussion, they have a post-test and and do not allow that kid to return to play until they get back to the cognitive level they were at before. So that's been a, a positive as well. Laird says the new rules and new awareness brought to head injuries has had a positive impact. Kids being held out is way up compared to what it used to be. And, and again, just because of what we know now compared to what uh, what we knew in, in the past. And, and we're, and we're, you know, we're going to err on the side of safety for sure. University of Wyoming football coach Craig Bull says he and his staff do the same thing. And players can't do anything to change his mind. When uh, our doctors in the sports medicine department deem a, a young man is concussed, uh, that's how it is. And so there's protocol that we go through, and there's a hard, clean, fast line. A, a guy can come into my office and say, Coach, I'm fine, I'm fine, I feel good. Uh, that doesn't hold a lot of water. Bull says any coach that doesn't take that approach will likely be facing a medical lawsuit if something goes wrong. For him, he's hoping for a little better luck at the concussion front next year. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the entire program or individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also sign up for our podcast on that website or get it from iTunes. And if you get the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate it and write a comment. And a rater is our web editor. All of our reporters are on Twitter, and we'd love for you to like our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page. Open Spaces will be off next week for the holiday weekend, but we'll have a brand new show on December 4th. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.